0: As Zoe was reading a minute ago, I was imagining her looking at this passage this week and thinking, who could I ask to put this on? I can't ask anybody else. I have to do it. Oh, thank you, Zoe. (laughs) Today we wrap up a story we've been listening to since the very beginning of the summer. And it's been an epic one covering decades in the history of Israel, some of Israel's most important figures, Samuel, Saul, and David along with a cast of smaller key characters, Hannah, the barren woman who receives a child, and Eli, the failed priest and the failed father, with his evil sons. And we've encountered in 1 Samuel some of the most memorable events in Israel's history, the time when the Ark of God was captured by the Philistines, placed in the temple of their god, Dagon only to frighten them into playing this game of hot potato with the ark of God until they finally send it back to Israel with two cows, a wagon, and offerings of gold. Please get out of here. (laughs) Then, of course, there's the story of David's defeat of Goliath. The shepherd boy with no armor overcomes the massive Goliath with his slingshot and a stone. Are these not the world's best stories? But despite all the moments that 1 Samuel feels like a story about victory, its ending is an unmistakable tragedy. If you read or watch movies mostly for mind candy, entertainment value, this is those one, the, one of those endings that's going to leave you wanting, desperate for something different. If you have a Bible... I hope you'll open it to 1 Samuel chapter 31. We're going to spend most of our time in this last chapter, and at the end, we'll pull in some of what we heard from 1 Samuel chapter 30. 1 Samuel chapter 31, verse 1, it begins, Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa final chapter begins with this bang. We're in the midst of a battle. Israel is under assault by the Philistines, and the Israelites are fleeing and falling. The dead are piling up quickly on the slopes of Mount Gilboa. Verse 2, the camera lens focuses in on the king, Saul, and his three warrior sons. They're the only ones left. And the Philistine army has surrounded them first take out the sons. Again in verse 3, the camera zooms in closer. Only King Saul and his armor bearer have survived. Saul is wounded by an arrow, and this is ironic, because Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin, and Benjamin is a tribe renowned for their use of bows and slings. We're told this in 1 Chronicles chapter 12. They were bowmen and could shoot arrows and sling stones with either the right or the left hand. They were Benjamites, Saul's kinsmen. Saul is brought down by his own tribe's specialty weapon. It's a dark irony. You know, last week we listened to a passage in which Saul again refused to repent for ignoring God. In fact, he traveled deeper into his defiance. And having rejected God repeatedly throughout his life, we then heard this dreadful news God had become Saul's enemy. This might be surprising on one level that God would do this sort of thing, that he would become a person's enemy. But it's consistent throughout the Bible. If you make a habit of blatantly rejecting God, he will reject you. This is throughout Scripture. He'll turn and he will become your enemy. So here, at the end of Saul's rebellious life, it's as if some invisible, ironic hand has directed an arrow to this specific target. Saul. It's as if the words of Psalm 7 apply directly to Saul. If a man does not repent, David says in Psalm 7, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. You wonder if David was thinking of Saul as he wrote this psalm. What we're seeing at the end of Saul's life is one picture of what happens when people turn from God and become his enemy. Verse 4, Saul is wounded. He's surrounded, he's desperate, and he's helpless. He can see the Philistines moving in for the kill, and he's overwhelmed with fear. One of the ancient Hebrew manuscripts literally says this, He writhed greatly in fear, or it could be translated, he quaked. With fear. So Saul commands his armor-bearer to kill him so that the Philistines can't capture him alive and torture him further. But this part too is a tragedy. Saul barks out an order as his last words, but no one listens to him. He's refused to listen to the word of Yahweh his God throughout his life, and now in the end, no one is there to listen to him. Either. So completely alone, completely isolated, Saul takes out his sword. He positions its point at his belly and he falls on it, <coughs> impaling himself upon. Verse 5. Upon seeing that King Saul is dead, the armor bearer follows suit. Now, verse 6 has to be read slowly, with a pause between each phrase to grasp the extent of the death and its finality. Thus, Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men, on the same day, There were Israelites who could see this battle in the distance, and they became completely hopeless. We're told that they abandoned their cities and fled. And the territory is quickly claimed by the Philistines, who come in and take over the cities. By verse 8, it's the next day. Saul's body was still lying there when the Philistines came round to plunder the fallen corpses. And the description here is gruesome and devastating. Normally, protecting a fallen warrior was this essential demand of honor in battle. And protecting the body of the king would have been the highest priority. In the story of the Iliad by Homer, which is set about a century before the death of Saul, we have dozens of scenes where a hero falls and the whole army gathers around the body to protect it. But what happens with Saul? At the end of his life, he's deprived of any company. In verse 9, the Philistines strip off Saul's armor. This is Saul's final divestment. He lies virtually naked on the battlefield in ultimate defeat. Think of all the stripping that has gone on in Saul's life. He had been stripped of his kingdom back in chapter 15, In chapter 18, he was stripped of God's spirit and his own sanity. In chapter 28, he was stripped of God's voice. And now in chapter 31, he's stripped of his troops, his sons, any remaining courage, his life. And then even after death, he is stripped of his armor and his head is cut off. Then in verse 10, the Philistines take what's left of him. They nail it to the wall of beth to be publicly mocked. So the tragic King Saul is stripped of any last shred of dignity that he possessed. In other stories of this period, the ultimate evil is death followed by desecration of the body. And this is what's happening to King Saul. In contrast to all that's been happening, though, when the Israelites of Jebesh Gilead hear what's happened to Saul, they remember Saul's best moment. Back in chapter 11, this was the village that was the beneficiary of, King, of Saul's first kingly act, his finest hour, when he delivered them from the cruel oppression of the Ammonites. And so the valiant men of Jabesh gilead remembering that Saul had stood by them, they determined to stand by Saul. Notice that Saul's tragic life, his tragic death, they don't remove the fact of human dignity and worth. This is important for Christians. Regardless of the tragedy of one's life or one's death, it does not remove their dignity as someone who has been made in the image of God. So on hearing, when the, Jibesh, the people of Jabesh Gilead hear of the Philistine outrage, they risk their lives. They trek through the night some 15 miles into the Philistine territory. And under the cover of darkness, they stealthily remove these impaled bodies of Saul and his sons. And they take them back home where they burn the bodies. Now, burning bodies was not something that usually happened in Israel. The body is sacred, and it's to be treated that way, even in death. But in this case, there was no other option to ensure that Saul and his son's dignity wasn't further violated when they took the bodies back. And so they burn the bodies, and they bury the bones under a tree. This is the last we hear in 1 Samuel. They burn his body their bodies and they bury the bones under a tree and then they fast for seven days. This is the ending. So 1 Samuel, this book that starts with the grief of Hannah's barren womb, it closes with a makeshift cemetery. And Israel defeated. What's bad is that beneath the surface of everything that we've just explored, Things are even worse. There's more going on here than just the reporting of events. You see, the author is drawing on other places in the larger story of the Bible to make a larger point. For instance, in verse 7, we're told that the Philistines take over the cities of Israel and they live in them, they live in cities that they have not built. You know, God's plan with Israel has been to establish them as a nation so that they might be a light to the world around them. That by obeying and loving God, they might lead the world back to God, back to the flourishing of Eden as God initially created the world. So in the Exodus, God delivered his people from slavery and he brought them into the promised land. And this is what God told them. Listen to this wor- uh, this, these verses from uh, the book of Joshua. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities you had not built and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of the vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. But now... In 1 Samuel 31, we hear that the Philistines, in defeating Saul, have taken over the cities of Israel that God gave them. Cities they did not build. And now the Philistines will enjoy cities they had not built and vineyards and olive orchards they didn't plant. Do you see what's happening here? It's a reversal of the Exodus an undoing of God's work on behalf of Israel to redeem the world. Israel takes steps backward and returns to their captivity. Saul's rebellion has become a catastrophe writ large across the nation of Israel. If you ever think that your sin only affects you, read the story of Saul. It is a catastrophe writ large. On top of this, at the end of verse 9, we hear that the Philistines carry the good news to the houses of their idols and to their people. A victory parade of sorts. And in verse 10, they place Saul's armor in the temple of Ashtaroth. In Chronicles, we hear that they place Saul's head in the temple of Dagon. Now this victory parade, it's not just a military statement. The Philistines are actually making a strong religious statement. The Philistine god, Dagon, had defeated the Israelite god, Yahweh. And the word used here for spreading the good news, do you know what word it is? It is the word Christians use for gospel. The message that death and evil have been overcome through Jesus Christ. But here it's used in a subversive way. In this case, God's people are the ones who've been overcome. They are left with no hope. And this is being celebrated by their enemies. This is Dagon's, in a riff off of a children's book, this is Dagon's exceptional, excellent, very good day. But it is Israel's terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Can you see how dark it is? This is where 1 Samuel ends with the awful gospel of Dagon, the awful good news of Yahweh's defeat. Having said all of this, the truth is Dagon has had his own extraordinary string of victories in our world too recently. Think about our own world. Mass murders are part of our daily news cycle, so that we can't even think about one until another one comes up. Our own country seems to be divided to the degree that people are only capable of loving some of their neighbors, but not others. And churches sadly are far from immune from Dagon. In fact, churches seem on at least one level to have been taken over by Dagon. Instead of being places for refuge and peace, children have been abused by their shepherds on a massive scale, and steps have been taken to protect the abusers. This is evil. This is idol worship. Now, if these issues are not personal enough, we also see Dagon's victories up close. Think about the cruel process of death among our own people and our own families. Dagon, in death, seeks our despair, our despair of life, our despair of hope. But it's not only this. In our families, even in marriages among us, Dagon has divided and torn by one form of evil or another. The church has forgotten what marriage is. Dagon is at work. Dagon has gained ground. We all know Christians who have become like Saul, who have ceased to listen and are being defeated by Dagon, Some of you are experiencing Dagon's work in your own life, hardening yourself to God and to his voice. There are many moments when from all we can see and feel, it's as if Dagon has won and Yahweh has been defeated. But the good news of Dagon is always short-lived. While Saul is being killed, David is earning his kingship by caring for the weary and the downtrodden, giving gifts to those who don't deserve them, saying that even if you don't deserve them, there is enough for you. In the next pages of the Bible, David becomes king. And After David, there will come many kings who are more like Saul than like David, but there are always more kings like David, kings like Hezekiah and Josiah, who lead the nation of Israel back to their God. Also. Like I mentioned earlier, this isn't the first time we've seen the temple of Dagon in this story. The last time we saw it, the Philistines believed they had defeated Yahweh, and they placed him at the feet of Dagon. But when they returned the next morning, Dagon was fallen over, lying at the feet of the ark. And the next morning, once again, he had fallen, only this time his hands and his head were cut off. You see, even then, the battle appeared to belong to Dagon and the Philistines, but what looked like Yahweh's defeat was, in fact, his invasion of the Philistines. Yahweh was defeating them from within. This is the pattern that God uses over and over in Scripture. If you study the story of Samson, Samson is brought into Philistine territory, and he looks like he's been taken captive, but instead... The Philistines are defeated from within. Over and over God uses this pattern. He appears to be defeated only to rise up in the midst of darkness, evil, and death and overcome it. This book of 1 Samuel is ultimately about a last David who appeared to be just another victim of the world's evil. He looked powerless under the the weight of the world's evil, but instead, in the moment he appeared the most defeated, lying lifeless in a tomb, he was achieving the greatest victory. Defeating Dagon and with him all the powers of darkness and death. Dagon's victories are always short-lived. We should hear this story, and we should feel the weight of darkness around us. Some of us have it in our own families. Some of us have it deep in us. We feel the weight of it. The enemy does gain ground in our world. There is darkness among us, and it threatens to undo us, to undo our families, to undo unity in the body of Christ, (coughs) And to lure us away from the love and purity of Christ. If you are making a habit of rejecting God, you should pay heed to this story and you should return to Him. Do not be like Saul. Don't suffer the fate of becoming God's enemy. Repent. All the while, all of us must learn to see the world with eyes of faith. God will never be utterly defeated. And wherever we are in life, with God with us, just like the ark of God in the temple of Dagon, we are never captives. Instead, we are agents. We are agents of God's kingdom deployed into his world as, with bearers, as bearers of the news. That Dagon's victories are brief. And even within all the darkness of the world, God is making all things new. His victories are brief. God will never be utterly defeated. And, And we, in whatever situations we are in, are agents of his kingdom, bearing the news that he is making all things new.